Hello and welcome to the Dodds Monitoring Podcast. Well, another difficult week for Prime Minister Boris Johnson. The Electoral Commission announced yesterday it would be opening an inquiry into the refurbishment of the Number 10 flat, stating there was reasonable grounds to suspect multiple offences may have been committed. A fraught and frustrated-looking Boris Johnson seemed to lose his cool in response to intense questioning on the issue yesterday by Sir Keir Starmer, and will no doubt be very glad of a break as Parliament is prorogued today to mark the end of the 2019-21 session of Parliament. The next time we will see Mr Johnson back in Parliament will be for the state opening and Queen's speech on the 11th of May, which I'm sure he will be hoping will be a reset button on the last very difficult 14 months. I'm Laura Hutchinson, I'm Head of UK Political Intelligence here at Dodds, And with these short 15 to 20 minute audio briefings, me and my team help you to understand the policy behind the politics. We are going to move away from the number 10 drama in this episode to focus on summer holidays and vaccine nationalism, particularly as we see the horrifying scenes unfolding in India. Joining me to discuss these issues, I'm very pleased to be joined by our health and life sciences expert, Nabil Rustani, and our transport and infrastructure guru, Helen Hill. So welcome to you both and thank you very much for joining me. Um, Nabil, we're going to start with you. Um, this week we've seen just uh, just horrifying scenes coming coming out of India. Hospitals are full, there are reports of oxygen emergencies and, and people are dying on the streets. I mean, what, what has caused the spike in cases? Yeah, thanks for having me, by the way. Uh, so I guess back in February, really, the whole the whole story started. The ruling party of India, which is the BJP, basically declared that the fight against COVID had been won. I think it's very important to recognise the BJP's logic in this regard. And that is that the government was under a lot of pressure uh, by local industry and businesses to basically open up the economy. Uh, And one reason being was that, you know, urban poverty rates, which are pretty much rampant in India already, would just keep getting worse if if there would be a kind of a long-term lockdown in place. But the other reason is also ideological, and that is the government is instinctively populist in India. The BJP is kind of ideologically wedded to um, Hindu majoritarianism, which means that, you know, pressure to open up for religious festivals in the winter was kind of pushing them to to open up anyway. So on the backdrop of that, uh, the Indian government basically relaxed a lot of social distancing uh, measures and allowed uh, major Hindu festivals as well as political rallies to resume. So scientists basically called those events, you know, a super spreader of the virus. You, know, you had millions of people gathering together in the months of March and February uh, to, to celebrate various Hindu festivals. And that period, alongside a very limited scope for vaccinations, has resulted in upwards of 200,000 uh, people reporting to have uh, died as a result of COVID. And I think that number is, is, is probably actually higher because there's a lot of unreported deaths and we're starting to see a lot of good journalism on the ground basically suggesting that it's a lot higher than that. Um, just to go on to in terms of the vaccine itself, I mean, only 2% of the Indian population has been fully vaccinated and there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, one of which is, of course, you know, the sheer size of the Indian population. You know, it's over a billion people. Another reason is how hard it is to vaccinate a population spread over such a vast area with 
um, you know, a fragile health system like India's. India doesn't have, supposedly it has a national health service, but in, in actuality it's, it's a dysfunctional uh, health model, you know, in villages and, and, and towns across the country. There isn't much hope for kind of a systematic kind of government-led approach to healthcare policy. But I think the other critical area is, of course, the, the kind of poor vaccination programme in relation to a vaccine nationalism, which we'll get into a little more depth. And it is quite ironic that, you know, India is home to the largest vaccine manufacturer, which is the Serum Institute in India, which is the largest one in the world. And yet Prime Minister Modi um, signed, um, basically signed up for domestic vaccines, ordering only about 11 million for frontline workers back in January. And he instead pursued kind of export orders, boasting that Indian made vaccines, including AstraZeneca, uh, would be licensed from the, the Serum Institute, uh, domestically produced and then sent to other countries. And they put a lot of emphasis on the local produced vaccine, the Covinax, um, which which wasn't really effective. So that, that plan basically didn't materialise. And that's basically snowballed into what we're seeing seeing now. I mean, that's that's incredibly interesting, Nabil. And it's just incredible to think that, as you said, the the place that is manufacturing uh, vaccines actually doesn't have enough for its own population at this point. Um, I mean, you, you've spoken a lot uh, in the past about vaccine nationalism um, on this podcast as well. I mean, could you just talk a bit more in depth about sort of what, what kind of role that's playing in, in India's spike here? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's quite interesting because, um, you know, if you compare the amount of vaccines that, say, India has compared to somewhere like Canada... Um, the disparity is shown quite quite manifest there. You know, Canada has ordered about 3.2 doses worth of vaccines per person, while India has just under one. Um, so that's obviously a huge disparity. And the issue with that, as, as we've, we've delved in before, is a lot of the more advanced economies like the UK, Canada, the US and European countries more broadly have basically bought up the supply of high quality vaccines, you know, the Pfizer and the AstraZeneca vaccines uh, particularly. Um, but another issue as well is, is kind of laid to blame almost at the, the, the foot of the American government. And in, in that is that, you know, President Biden basically uh, used the Defence Production Act, which is actually a Korea War era law that enables a president to order the prioritization of government contracts by US companies. And that has undermined the ability uh, of vaccine production suppliers to actually export needed raw materials to India. So the White House has basically said, you know, that they needed to do that in order to um, make sure that they could shore up their own internal supplies. But that has had a negative impact on the quantity of, of uh, raw materials needed to actually produce vaccines within India for domestic use. Um, and that has actually had a knock-on effect on other countries because, as I said, India is kind of a major producer of vaccines. You know, so Bangladesh is already reporting that its own supply of vaccines, uh, 23 million doses, which is supposed to arrive uh, this Wednesday, the, the yesterday, um, actually haven't arrived yet because obviously India is now increasingly starting to um, take a more export ban focus and starting to uh, utilise whatever supplies they can for themselves. So that's having a negative impact on other countries. Um, so in that regard, there has been a kind of a, a late, but there has been some sort of a response by other countries. So Canada has pledged around $8 million uh, worth of aid to India, while the UK sent around 200 pieces of ventilators and oxygen concentrators. And the ironic thing is, I guess, the, the US uh, has, has understood its kind of mistake in that regard and is trying to rectify it in some way. So they've sent a, a strike team along with removing those impediments to exports 
of raw materials for vaccines um, and supplying kind of more rapid diagnostic t kits. But I think overall this kind of leads back to, to that broader point and that is, you know, those existing divides that were there between the global north and the global south, which were already widening um, at the, the turn of this century have just been exacerbated. Um, with this crisis and we saw you know the economic effects of the pandemic kind of asymmetrically hitting a lot of the global south countries we didn't have the the, the the kind of economic firepower to protect their populations through a welfare mechanism but now as we're entering that kind of second stage where we, we're seeing kind of the rollout of vaccines and that is such a precious uh, good you're seeing kind of that that having an impact in the longer term because obviously if a country like let's say the uk is able to roll out its vaccine then it can open up its economy but a country like india which is so reliant on obviously you know tourism and, and trade in that regard um until they can actually roll out their vaccine effectively um then they're, they're going to be in this kind of periodic uh, series of spikes and unfortunate deaths and things like this so the adverse effects of COVID are still going to remain, I guess, until the entire world is uh, is, is kind of more equitably supplied with uh, with vaccines. So vaccine nationalism, unfortunately, is a um, an issue that, I guess, remains a pervading part of, I guess, political discourse, probably for the next five to ten years even. That's extraordinary, the thought that we we're going to be talking about this for um, five to ten years, but I'm, sh I'm sure you're right. Um, I think the UK government would be very quick to point out that it, it has uh, given millions um, in UK aid to, to COVAX in particular. Um, but definitely, I'm sure more more can be done by the sort of uh, developed uh, countries. Um, Helen, as as important uh, as as it is to sort of obviously stay focused on those parts of the world that are still suffering with the pandemic, as Nabil was there, um, I was hoping perhaps we could move on to you for for some perhaps happier news. Uh, regarding travel. Um, so we've, we finally had confirmation this week that the UK will use an NHS phone app as its vaccine passport to enable British holidaymakers to travel abroad this summer. How much do we know about sort of what international travel will look like and, and where might we be able to go? Morning, Laura. Uh, yeah, thank you for having me and um, happier news indeed. So in very exciting news, we've finally had a long waited announcement from the Transport Secretary yesterday that the UK will definitely be using vaccine passports and they'll be rolling them out through an NHS app. Um, to clarify, a government spokesperson has said that the app won't actually be the NHS COVID app that you use to check into venues, uh, but will instead be the NHS app that you use to book general appointments. Um, quite bizarre in my mind. But if it works, then it works. So yeah, you'll be able to use the app to demonstrate that you either had the jab or recently tested negative for the virus. Um, other countries which are already trialling vaccine passports are also allowing people who have tested positive for COVID in the last six months to log this in the app too as proof that they have had the COVID antibodies. Uh, so yeah, it looks like holidays abroad are a real possibility. In terms of what else will be necessary for international travel beyond the COVID passport, passengers actually will still need to take a pre-departure test and one test on their return, according to Shaps. Um, so quite controversially, the Transport Secretary has said that he felt that this wouldn't face much pushback because people were already getting used to testing, especially when the public have been asked to test themselves twice a week. And I do understand where he's coming from there. Uh, testing has become a huge part of our lives. 
Um, but the PCR testing that the government requires for international travel isn't necessarily that cheap right now, unless the government starts to implement the recommendations of the Transport Select Committee and the Global Travel Task Force and reduce this cost, then holidays just won't be as accessible as the tourism sector and the public need them to be. Turning to where we'll be able to go is kind of a two part question. So the first part is making sure that our vaccine passport system will be accepted and internationally recognised. Um, but I don't really envision any problems cropping up there. I think countries with tourist economies have already missed one summer. So I'm sure they're looking to accept as many tourists as possible. Spain and Portugal have already said that they're gearing up to welcome tourists for June. Uh, and then the second part of working out where we'll be able to go is this traffic light system, which will deem countries as green, amber or red based on the level of risk that they're classified as by the JBC. And if it sounds familiar, it's because of it is. It's all pretty similar to last summer, where travellers could travel between the UK and green countries without self-isolation. Um, for amber countries, passengers need to self-isolate for 10 days when travelling back. And then those travelling back from red countries will have to pay out for a hotel quarantine. Now, the Transport Secretary said yesterday that he's still awaiting this data from the JBC before he can release this list like carved up by light colour, but he's indicated an announce that an announcement will be made in early May, sometime before travel is expected to be able to resume on the 17th. And there's been rumours that that list will be published on the 10th, uh, which is just one week before we're allowed to travel again. There's obviously been a lot of speculation as to which countries will be on the green list, and basically everyone has different opinions. We do know that the factors involved in, in assessing how a country is categorised will be vaccination rates, COVID prevalence, the extent of variance and the capacity of the country for genome sequencing. Um, I'd speculate that any kind of island holiday could be quite a safe bet for the green list simply because of natural defences. And that's evidenced by the island's policy that the government brought in last summer. We also know that Greece will welcome any fully vaccinated tourists without quarantine if they can show proof with an NHS paper card too, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they'll be on the green list. There's a lot of discussion, of course, whether Europe will be on the amber list, and to be honest, I would guess that quite a lot of Europe would be on amber due to these lower vaccination rates. Um, but basically, at this point, my guess is as good as anyone's until the fault list in published last year. Um, no one really knew until the day it was out. Um, but one difference between this summer and the last is that the government will also bring out this new green watch list, which will help to identify the countries most at risk from moving from green to amber. And this is a real positive this summer because it's going to help to alleviate some of the apprehension for consumers. But it's also going to allow businesses in the tourism industry to be able to plan better for any sudden changes. So in terms of next steps and like dates for your diary, we're expecting the full traffic light list of countries to be published sometime in early May, possibly the 10th, um, too soon to say. So on the 17th, the UK is expected to permit international holidays once more, and the government will also publish a COVID charter setting out what is required of passengers to travel and what their rights are while measures remain in place. Um, after that, restrictions will be formally reviewed on the 28th of June, and only this morning, Transport Secretary said he would look at whether restrictions on international travel could potentially be eased. Um, but I think it's just too soon to speculate on that for now. That was a fantastic overview. Thank you, Helen. Um, I found it particularly cold in London this week. So confirmation that we'll be able to go on holiday uh, perhaps soon is, is very good news. Um, it must also be very welcome news for people uh, sort of in the travel industry, particularly the aviation industry. I mean... Is there a feeling in the sector that high demand will be able to get this industry back on its feet? Uh, or is there a feeling that, you know, the hit's been so large that more support is, is needed? 
Sure. So to touch on the aviation sector, uh, the reception to the government's offering hasn't been warm. Um, A few weeks ago, uh, the Global Travel Task Force published its report outlining recommendations to support the safe return of international travel following the pandemic. And this was basically where the government confirmed that they were bringing back the traffic light and they were going to lead on the development of international standards around a digital travel certification system, i.e. vaccine passports. Um, But there wasn't much more than that. Now, the chair of the Transport Select Committee, Hugh Merriman, was pretty damning in his assessment of the government's report. And he said that it clipped the wings of international travel and represented a missed opportunity for the government to offer the aviation and travel sectors any certainty. And quite fairly, he's also asked a question, which I'm sure a lot of potential holiday makers are asking, which is why it's perfectly fine for hauliers to use cheap lateral flow testing when they're coming back from any part of the world. But all travellers would have to pay for PCR tests, which are about four times as expensive. And to put a number on it, you know, the Transport Committee estimates that each person would have to pay out around £125 per holiday on testing alone. It's not an insignificant amount. Um, And the committee has also called for the traffic light framework to be set out by May the 1st. I don't see this happening. Um, For the government to offer an affordable testing regime and act to reduce waiting times and queues at the UK border, uh, like working with partner countries to agree mutual recognition, deploying more staff at the border, and processing passenger locator forms before passengers arrive in the UK. So unsurprisingly then, industry leaders are also not happy. Um, The General Secretary of the British Airline Pilots Association called the report a bitter disappointment for everyone working in the travel industry. Uh, The chief exec for the International Air Transport Association said that the report was too vague, too complex and too cautious. Uh, The Association of British Travel Agents has also called for the green category to be as wide as possible because they suspect that passengers just won't risk having to isolate on return from holiday and would rather not go at all. Jet 2 has even postponed the suspension of flights um, and holidays to the 23rd of June due to a lack of clarity and detail from the government just because they feel that the delay around these announcements has just been not fair on customers, travel agents and staff. Basically then, the picture that's being painted is one of government who haven't offered the sector specific support that they promised at the start of the pandemic, and now in the eyes of the industry are only disincentivising travel and limiting the sector's potential for recovery. I do think that if the government had done more to support the industry throughout the rest of the pandemic, businesses may have been more on board with the more stringent restrictions this summer, but unfortunately the sentiment seems to be in the industry is that businesses are running out of patience and running out of money. Fortunately, I think a lot of people are really desperate for a summer holiday this year. I know I am, so I'm hoping, and the industry's hoping, that the sheer demand for some sunshine will be able to get the industry through another COVID-restricted summer. Thank you so much, Helen. Thinking about it, I think I probably should have asked you the questions the other way around um, so we could end on a a note of optimism, but never mind. Um, Nabil, Helen, thank you so much uh, for for joining me and giving us that amazing overview of these very complicated issues. Uh, And thank you so much to everyone for listening as well. Um, This will actually be our last episode in the current series of these weekly uh, Dodds Monitoring podcasts. Um, Dodds will be announcing a new series in due course, so fear not. Um, But in the meantime, please keep an eye on your email and our Twitter feed for details of our planned one-off special podcasts. Um, We've got one coming up um, on the results of the UK local elections, so please stay tuned for that. Until then, thank you for listening.